Marlinda, and I'd like for us to read the scripture together today. John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word and as we, through eyes of faith, see this Easter morning scene, Lord, I pray that you would awaken fresh joy in our hearts, fresh faith in a risen king. May we see ourselves and the scene through the eyes of Mary. And may this be the event that not only turned her life upon its head, but turns our life upon its head. The great unexpected turn for the good. Better than any other story we could ever be told. And best of all, this story is true. May we see it and feel it anew this morning, perhaps for the first time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I buried my grandmother this past week. Roberta Winter, my mother's mother, was a precious lady who left a legacy of love and kindness that spills out in our family like a waterfall cascading down from one generation to the next. She died in her home in Gainesville, outside of Gainesville, Florida, with my mother and her siblings gathered around. As she was being buried next to my grandfather, who preceded her in death by less than three months, on the ground around her graveside sat about two dozen of her great-grandchildren, and I think great-grandchild number 28 or 29, something like that, was born as I was preaching her funeral message. Grammy battled dementia during the last of her 93 years. But even if she forgot your name, she never forgot to show you the love and kindness of her Savior. Dementia also never took away any of her catchphrases. And she was a woman of many catchphrases. If you were in the kitchen struggling to figure out what you wanted to eat, she would look at you and ball up her little fist and say, how about a knuckle sandwich? (laughs) As you went off to bed, she'd call after you. The first one up is a rotten egg. As you left her house, she would always say, remember, you have to leave so that you can come back. While there's an element of tragedy in any funeral, the sense of separation created by death always feels tragic, and it is. While there's an element of tragedy in every funeral, in the case of my grandmother's death, the sense of tragedy felt much, much smaller than the sense of triumph. The triumph of a life, full life, faithfully lived, a legacy of love poured out, of death giving way to victory in Christ. We, her family, saw that she had to leave so that she could come back healed and whole. Because of the resurrection, the tragedy of death has been undone. But imagine with me for a moment another funeral, another graveside, where the scene feels much, much more tragic. A husband, a father, dying in the prime of life, leaving behind a heartbroken wife, leaving behind grieving children. Or imagine a child, an only child, killed in a horrible accident or in some horrendous act of violence. Imagine the heavy sense of tragedy encompassing a funeral scene. Picture the grieving of a mother for her only child. Picture the weeping of children for a father that they have lost. Perhaps you don't have to imagine it, because you've lived it. You've been there. You've seen it. you felt it. In that moment, at that funeral, at that graveside, what one thing 
could, in an instant, turn the tragedy upside down. What one thing could, in a single moment, turn all the heartbreak on its head. Dr. Watson knows. He said it while standing over the grave of Sherlock Holmes. Just one more miracle, Sherlock. Don't be dead. Don't be dead. If the greatest catastrophe imaginable is the tragic death of someone you love, then the greatest you catastrophe imaginable is for the dead one you love to be surprisingly not dead anymore. No other eucatastrophe could top that. No other surprising turn for the good in any story can top that of resurrection. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle knew this when he brought Sherlock Holmes back from the dead to Dr. Watson's great shock and surprise. Sci-fi writers know this as well. The most moving moment in any time travel story is always the moment of unexpectedly seeing someone's long-dead loved one alive once again. That plot point is in virtually every time travel film I have ever seen, and it always brings a tear to my eye. When a son sees his father alive again, when a wife gets to see her husband one more time, it brings a tear because it is like a resurrection. Now, imagine the scene again of the husband, the father, who has tragically died. Let's say he is a Ukrainian soldier who's died defending his home, his family, his freedom. The family gathers at the funeral. Officials present the folded blue and gold flag And they tell the family that their loved one died on the front lines as a war hero. Grief-stricken, the wife, the widow, and the children leave the funeral to begin a life without him. But as they walk out of the church door, they hear a shout and someone running up to them. And there, standing in uniform, the wife sees her husband. The children see their father. It was all a mistake. He's alive. All sorrow is wiped away in one moment of recognition. All tears of grief are transformed to tears of joy in an instant. In a moment of eucatastrophe, a sudden unexpected turn for the good. Or imagine the grieving parents In Turkey, after the earthquake, their only child buried deep under a collapsed building. No one could have survived such destruction. They have a funeral, and then they go home and sit in their grief and sorrow. But, unexpectedly, the phone rings. And the rescuer on the other end says that their only child is alive. And he is asking for you. The son wasn't in his room, but in the basement pantry getting a snack when the building collapsed. He's been there with all the food and water he needed to survive. Imagine the wild joy of that moment. 
Imagine the parents running with hope rekindled in their hearts. Can you imagine it? You'll need that kind of imagination if you are to feel the full force of the Easter story. You'll need that imagination if you're going to see the resurrection today through Mary's weeping eyes. That's what we want to do this morning. This morning, let's see the scene of the first Easter through Mary's eyes and through five headings. Five headings. The first is this. I think there's five. There may be six. There's five. There's five. Okay. Five headings. Let's first see in verses one and two, tragedy after tragedy. Tragedy after tragedy. That's our first heading, tragedy after tragedy. Look at verses one and two. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary is the first at the tomb on Easter morning. And to her, the tragedy of Jesus' death has just been multiplied. She sees the stone rolled away, guards not at their post, and assumes that Jesus' body has been taken. Jumping to that conclusion, she takes off at a run, back into the city, and tells Peter and John what's happened. Verse 2, she says, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Imagine the tragedy upon tragedy. Someone you dearly love has just died. You then show up at the funeral home expecting some last moments of grief and closure. But when you get there, you find that your loved one's body is missing. Or worse, the body has been stolen. And you have no idea why or by whom. Is is it grave robbers? Is it medical students? Maybe it's stolen by some Dr. Frankenstein for some unnatural experiment. You don't know. But now you do know that you can't even grieve properly. And any opportunity for closure in this tragedy has been stolen from you with the body. It feels like tragedy after tragedy. And with the mounting tragedies... Mary is sinking deeper and deeper in sorrow and despair. I'm sure she wonders how she could possibly take any more. I wonder this Easter if you know something similar. You've seen one tragic circumstance follow another. You've wondered how you could possibly keep going how you could possibly keep putting one foot in front of the other after experiencing one tragedy after another? If so, you're precisely where Mary is. It couldn't have been easy, but Mary does keep putting one foot in front of the other 
all the way back to the tomb once again. There and back again and again. Before we see how God deals with Mary, let's first follow the foot race of the disciples and see in verses 3 through 9, belief after unbelief. That's our second hitting, belief after unbelief. Look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, and he did, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Upon hearing the news that Mary rushes back to tell them, Peter and John take off at a run for the tomb to see it for themselves. Imagine for a moment what that run might have been like. Imagine their complete disregard for anyone who happened to hail them on the way. No shaloms were returned that day. They blew past everyone they saw on the street. Imagine the thoughts that might have been rushing through their minds as they ran. John says that he outruns Peter and gets there first, which is a detail I'm sure that Peter appreciates, John including in his gospel. At least we can tell from this comment that this wasn't one of those run and jog, run and talk type of jogs. Uh, you're running with someone in the, to the city park. It's not like that. Carrying a conversation. No, this, this was a full-out run. Like parents getting the news that their child had just been uncovered in the rubble. They take off. There's uncertainty at what they will find when they arrive. And there is perhaps a wild hope also. In such circumstances, each at their own max speed must fly. And it only makes sense that one of them outpace the other. John arrives first, but he stands back at the entrance. Peter, true to form, barrels on in to that tomb before he puts on the brakes. And then John comes in behind him. And what they see there astonishes them. They don't see bloodstains and the signs of a deadly struggle overcoming the guards. They also don't see the chaotic signs of a slash and grab operation for Jesus' body. What they do see is an orderly burial place. The grave clothes folded with care. The face cloth, not lying on the floor, but lying rolled up precisely where it should be. The disciples read the clues. And John says, in that moment, he began to believe. Verse 8, he saw and believed. At this point, 
John had seen too much. Belief was beginning. Belief after unbelief. Belief was being born even though, verse 9, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. For John, belief was beginning even though full understanding wasn't there yet. I wonder this morning if you can relate to that. I know I can. I regularly find myself in a position that St. Augustine, Augustine, we don't know how his mama said it, how he described it. Augustine described our position as Christians as this. We are in a position of faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe what you're saying. And I see a bit of what you're doing. But Lord, I don't yet see how all the pieces fit together. I see what you say about sexual ethics, but I don't fully understand why it must be this way. I see what you say about gender, even though I don't fully understand why you made it this way. I see what you say about creation, but I don't fully understand how this fits with this or that scientific theory. I very often find myself in John's position saying, I believe even though I don't yet fully understand. With John, I have to say, Lord, I don't completely get it all, but I've seen too much to turn back now. My heart has been changed too much by an encounter with Christ to go and look elsewhere. I don't yet understand the whole picture. I don't yet know how all the pieces, how all the evidence fits together. But I do see all the evidence pointing in the same direction, to the same conclusion. I don't pretend to understand it all, but I've seen too much to be satisfied with unbelief. I've drank too deeply. I've tasted too much to turn back again to a tasteless world. Hopefully, this morning, you can relate to John as well. Belief comes after unbelief. But that doesn't mean you have all the answers. It doesn't mean understanding everything. It does mean that we respond with faith to the light that we have, to the truth that we have. We believe the truth that God sets before our eyes. And we move through life from a position of faith-seeking understanding. Praying like those who have gone before us, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Here's a third hitting as this story now shifts back to Mary. In verses 11 through 13, we'll see 
wonders after weeping. Wonders after weeping. Look at verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. In verse 11, Mary returns to the scene of the crime, or so she thinks. By this time, Mary has run the same route twice, as well as walking it once, and she must be exhausted physically, emotionally. Either Peter and John leave her there, or it could be that they've left before she arrives back a second time. Whatever the case, Mary is now by herself. And she is beside herself, weeping. Mary weeps for the Messiah that she has lost twice. Once to death and now again to theft. But in the middle of her weeping, something wonderful happens. She looks into the tomb and there at the head and foot of where Jesus' body once rested... Now sit two angels, clothed in brilliant white. These are the same two angels, presumably, who speak to the other women who come to the tomb in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts. While Mary is doing all this running about, that is going on. Mary really could have spared herself a lot of weeping and a lot of running if she had just hung tight at the tomb, waiting for some answers. Instead of jumping to the conclusion. But if she had avoided all the trouble, then she would have missed what comes next. Mary gets to see wonders after her weeping. I bet your life has included some running in circles. Some just tiring hassles in life, some jumping to wrong conclusions, some weeping for good reason and for not so good reason. God doesn't tell Mary and he doesn't tell us why. But he does tell us to wait. He doesn't tell us why, but he does tell us to wait. Wait upon him and we will see his wonders. Let's learn a lesson from Mary this morning and learn to trust the author of our story. Trust him when it seems like you're running in circles. Trust him when it seems like you're running all, all alone. All the futility and all the tears and all the grief can just be the buildup to something incredibly special. Let's see that. Let's see what happens next in verses 14 through 16. Let's see gladness after grief. Gladness after grief in verses 14 through 16. 
When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is the moment right here. Like the father standing outside of his own funeral, like the call from the rescuers who have found your child alive, Mary has a moment of recognition that changes everything for her. If I were making a film out of John's gospel, this would be the Oscar moment right here. And the Oscar-winning frame would just be a close-up of Mary's face. Mary's face in this moment. Whoever was playing Mary would have to give the performance of their lives. In one moment of recognition, Mary's face would have to totally transform from utter despair to radiant joy. It would be one of the greatest moments ever captured on film. Can you picture it? Can you picture such a radical change in the blink of an eye? Everything you thought about life had been turned on its head in one moment. Everything bad had suddenly become untrue in one moment. And don't miss this. That moment of recognition comes at the sound of your own name spoken. Mary. Your own name being spoken by a loved one. A loved one who had just defeated death and come back for you. We are not told if this eucatastrophe moment put a stop to Mary's weeping, to her tears. I kind of feel like it didn't. Tolkien said there is a joy that pierces so deep, it brings tears. Mary had had her heart pierced twice. First by the ugliness of death and loss, and then pierced a second time by the beauty of Christ's resurrection and her surprising gain. The gladness of this moment is probably felt more keenly because of how great that chasm is between those two extremes. Going from utterly devastated to incandescently happy in one moment. I bet... This is true in your experience as well. The joy of what you gain in Christ is only felt in proportion with how much you see yourself lost without him. If you see yourself to be a fairly decent fellow, then Christ is felt to be little more than a fairly decent savior. But if you know yourself to be full of depravity, if you feel yourself like Paul to be the chief of sinners, 
then Christ is felt to be quite the Savior indeed. Jesus once said, in response to Mary Magdalene's anointing him with perfume, Jesus once said, he who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. The deeper our grief over our sin, the greater our gladness will be over our Savior. Let's see finally, in verses 17 through 18, mission after misery. Mission after misery. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We can tell from his words exactly how Mary responded to the risen Jesus. Her response wasn't to stand at a distance in fear or reverential awe. Mary went straight in for the embrace in a way that brings to mind Susie and Lucian's embrace of Aslan after he defeated death and broke the stone table. It's, it is a real bear hug here. It's a clinging to Jesus like a wife would do to the husband she thought dead. It is a never-let-go embrace like a child rescued from the grave. After a time, we don't know exactly how long, but I imagine it was a goodly while, Jesus has to say, stop clinging to me. (laughs) Turn me loose. Stop clinging to me, Mary, because I have a mission for you. Stop clinging to me, for the game is afoot. Mary, I will ascend victorious over death, and you will be sent to proclaim it. Go first to my disciples. Go to my brothers and tell them my mission isn't over. It is just beginning. The misery is behind you now, Mary. Shake it off. It is now time to embrace the mission. And that's exactly what Mary does. Verse 18, she goes and announces, I have seen the Lord. For Mary, an encounter with the resurrected Jesus at Easter immediately propels her outward on mission. She has left her old cares, her old hang-ups behind, and embraces the new purpose that Jesus has brought to her life. You're a witness now, Mary. You're a witness to the resurrection. You're a witness to death's defeat. Go and tell about it. And this gladness you feel will be amplified as you bring others into the same joy and gladness. That's your mission, Mary. And church... That's your mission as well. We have the story that everyone wants and needs to hear but doesn't know it. 
we have the ultimate story of death's defeat. The story of death's tragedy undone. Of death's sting removed. Unlike other stories that you merely hear, this is a story that we participate in. We've already seen the picture of it. That participation this morning in baptism. In baptism we are saying we are united to Christ in his death, in his resurrection. We participate in this story. And we are now messengers declaring what he has done in history and in us. Baptism publicly declares our participation in Christ's death and resurrection like a marriage ceremony publicly declares our union and love for one another. We are wed to Christ in his life and his death. So that all that he achieves and all that he inherits is rightfully ours as well. That's the way marriage works. We are married, we are bound together by a covenant of love to the one who is the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus said. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asked. Do you believe this? My grandmother believed. She believed and participated in the great story of death's defeat. In the great story of sin's debt paid. By another. And if she was right to believe in the story, in the Savior, then the tragedy of her death really has been undone. All the sad things really have become untrue. What my grandmother said to us each time we left her presence, I can picture Jesus saying to Mary, 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 didn't you know I had to leave so that I could come back? Church, this Easter, let's believe in this incredible good news. Let's believe in the ultimate eucatastrophe. Let's believe in the old, old story. The story of a king who comes back, having conquered death itself. It's not a story that you can just affirm and then go your own way. It's a story that we must participate in. It's a story that sends us out, propels us on mission, proclaiming the good news of death's defeat until the king comes again. We proclaim this Lord's day and we proclaim it every day hereafter that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Or, as Grammy might say, he had to leave us so that he could come back. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the greatest turn and the greatest story ever told. 
we thank you that in Christ's death itself has been undone. We thank you that through faith we are united to this story and to this victory. He who lives and believes in the Lord Jesus will never truly taste death. Its sting has been removed. Its consequences have been taken upon another. Lord, I thank you for the resurrection. And as we celebrate Christ risen this Easter day, may we do it with hearts full of faith. If perhaps there's someone here hearing this good news for the first time, may their heart's response be one of embracing Jesus, like Mary at the tomb, embracing this Savior as their Lord and King. May that be the response of every heart, young and old, afresh and anew today. We ask it this in Jesus' name. Amen.